Hey, hey, welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. I'm Sarah Buino, and I am truly honored that you are sharing your ears with me today. And I wanted to take a moment just to introduce a couple things before I introduce today's guest. Wanted to let you know one of the best places that you can connect with me is at Head Heart Therapy on Instagram. As if you've been a listener for a long time, you know, Instagram is totally my fave way to connect with people. So please feel free to follow me on there. I post funny memes. I post things that are thought provoking, things that promote social justice and things that really are centered around healing. So I hope that you will join me there. I also was curious if you've been a listener for a while, I imagine that you've thought, hmm, I wish Sarah would have a conversation with this person. And I'm always on the lookout for new, great, amazing guests. And I found, I do find a lot of them on Instagram, but I also realized that when I was out about in the world, I would meet more people. And now that I'm stuck in my little closet all day long, (laughs) I'm not meeting as many people. So I need your help. So if you're interested in connecting me with somebody, you can email us at info at headhearttherapy.com and make a suggestion. And we have this little form that people fill out if they're interested in becoming a guest, but I would just love to hear from you. I'd so much appreciate it. Now on to today's amazing guest. I really enjoyed this conversation. I think you're really going to dig Brandon too. So today I'm talking with Brandon Jones and Brandon is a psychotherapist professor and currently serves as the integrated services manager at North Point Health and Wellness Center. He specializes in adverse childhood experiences, historical and intergenerational trauma, social-emotional intelligence, leadership, and youth justice. Born and raised in St. Paul, Minnesota, Brandon has survived living in a home of domestic violence and various other forms of trauma. Brandon holds a BA in sociology from the University of Minnesota, a master's in community psychology from Metropolitan State University, and a master's in psychotherapy from Adler Graduate School. Brandon is also a 2013 Bush Foundation Leadership Fellow. He's also a professor at Metropolitan State University and Century College. He lives by the motto of live life with purpose, on purpose. So please enjoy this conversation with Brandon Jones. Hello, Brandon Jones. Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. How are you? It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Right. I didn't even tell you how I am yet. I'm not truly I am not well today. (laughs) I we have a rescue dog that is not a good fit and Mm. it's heartbreaking and nerve wracking and all these things. And I just I I'm very sad today. Mm -hmm. And it's okay. You know, one of the things I think that happens is as healers, people who do this type of work, Sometimes we don't always take the best care of ourselves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing that I've noticed is a lot of us who get into this work have been hurt at some point in time. And sometimes we don't even heal those kind of wounds or we're, we're not doing our healing journey, as I like to call it. And that stuff seeps up all the time as we try mm-hmm. to do this work. So if you're in a space where, you know, you're just not feeling good today, there's nothing wrong with that. Right. It happens. Yeah. yeah. It happens. And I'm I like to keep it real on the podcast and not pretend like Good. everything's OK, because that's just dumb. <laughs> oh, I did forget to tell you before we started, you can cuss if oh. if, if you are called to do so. Perfect. We're going to yeah. get the, the raw version of Brandon, the ready, yes. able and willing version. All right. <laughs> I love it. Most podcasts and shows I appear on. No profanity, but I know. Fuck that. Yeah. Fuck that. <laughs> I mean, into I, it. <laughs> yeah, I work with addiction and trauma. Like we got to be able to cuss, man. Got to keep it raw. I mean, I think right? that's the best way to connect with clients and sometimes even peers 
is to be able to keep it raw because that's their reality. That's where they come from. And when you're able to let that guard down, it really builds that rapport and that connection to help them move forward and make sure that, but the key to that though, is not to overdo it, you know, because then you just look like you're trying too hard, you know, (laughs) (laughs) but you know, do it, you Mm -hmm. know, like you would do with your friends having that, you know, yeah, yeah. A little sprinkle here and there. And then that to me is how you really build that authentic connection and rapport. But that's a little inside tool that I utilize myself. Yeah, agreed. Well, I can tell people how I found you. And then I'd love for you to really tell people who you are. So I do a lot of trainings and I've done a decent amount of trauma trainings. And I talk about intergenerational trauma, but it's just one slide. And I was like, you know what? This, This is where the rubber meets the road. And as a white presenter, I really need to do more research and bring in more understanding of other cultures' experience of trauma. And so I don't even remember what I Googled, but a PowerPoint of yours came up and I looked through it and I'm like, hello. Okay. And then I, and then I looked up your name and I was like, well, shit, we, he's got to be on my podcast. So that's, that is the origin story of how we came to be. But tell us all about you. Absolutely. And, and just like you found that slide deck, my trauma started before I was born. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of people does when you talk about intergenerational trauma, mm-hmm. a lot of times we like to focus on the particular incident or event or right. incidents that happened. But a lot of times stuff's already in motion before the person's even thought of. And that's my origin story. You yeah. know, I grew up in the Twin Cities. I'm from St. Paul, Minnesota. And I grew up in a household full of trauma and drama, seen a lot of domestic <laughs> violence as a kid. A lot mm. of it. I've I seen a lot of drug use. I've seen a lot of community violence. I've seen prostitution. I was just exposed to things that I probably shouldn't have been exposed to very early. And it was no like fault of anyone. It was just circumstances and environment. I had a good mother, She cared about her children, even to this day, even though we're all adults now, she's still a great mom. I had a stepfather who was a terrorist. I mean, before we had this idea of what a terrorist is, I know when I say that people picture like an Arab person and, you know, some radical. But really, a terrorist is somebody who just inflicts terror on environments and on people. Mm -hmm. And that's who my stepfather was. And Mm -hmm. every time he was in and out a lot. So I I felt like I grew up in a single parent household. But when he was there, it was always hectic, always, Mm -hmm. never fails. And then he would be out for periods of time. So that's how I was. And I thought he was my biological father until a mm-hmm. couple of weeks before my 12th birthday. And that's when my grandma, my my maternal grandmother, my mom's mom, I was at her house and she sat me down and said, Brandon, I need you to sit down. I need you to listen. Now, where I come from, when your grandmother tells you something like that, you think you're about to get your butt whooped, right? So I was <laughs> like, oh, shit, this is my ass, right? But it wasn't that. She said, you know, one thing that has happened in your life is that we haven't always told you the truth. Mm. And she said, Michael is not your dad. That's verbatim what she said. And that always rang in my head. It's like, Michael is not your dad. Michael Mm. was my stepfather. And I say that and I tell his name because it's very important to my story because I'm the oldest of three boys. So I have two younger brothers. And my brother right below me, his name is Michael Jr. And I never knew why. And I used to ask my mother, I used to say, hey, why did you name me, Michael? Like, it's weird. My name's Brandon. Why do you name me? So the story was, my mom used to say, well, when I was pregnant with you, I watched a lot of soap operas and there was a character on there named Brandon. And I just liked the name. So that's why I named you that. Makes a lot of sense, which is probably partially true, right? Mm -hmm. But she didn't tell me the other half of the story. She gave me a half truth, which was, well, Michael wasn't your dad. So that's why you don't have that name. So So my grandmother unveils that secret. And then the next thing she says is, and you're going to meet your dad on your birthday. Now, my birthday is July 4th. Oh, my God. 
Oh, so really? Yes. Oh, my God. So, <laughs> so she said, so you're going to meet your dad on your birthday and I'm going to take you to see him. And I was like, OK. And she said, your dad lives in North Minneapolis. And for folks who are not familiar with this region, that's where the black folks live. OK, so in Minneapolis, that's where black people live. A lot of stuff happens in North Minneapolis. And I'm a kid from St. Paul. There's black folks in St. Paul, too. But when you hear North Minneapolis, you think of whatever that bad part of town is mm-hmm. in your area. That's what you associate. And I had that internalized racist kind of ideal of North Minneapolis as anyone else as a black kid. So I'm like, my grandma's trying to kill me on my birthday. Like, that was my thought. <laughs> so I'm turning 12. I'm like, okay, oh she's gosh. sending me to North Minneapolis. This is where people get shot. This is where people die. Because I'm, I, you know, I have all the crazy thoughts as a kid has. Right. So I remember, you know, our main interstate that connects both of our cities is Interstate mm-hmm. 94. Mm-hmm. And I remember just riding, looking out the window like, oh, this is going to be the last time I ever see any of this stuff. <laughs> I, I'm thinking I'm about to die. But this is the this is the mind of a yeah. young child, you know. And I'm like, man, I'm gonna go meet my dad, and I'm probably not gonna make it back home. So I brought like my Ninja Turtles oh. with me. I still was playing with Ninja Turtles at the time. So I'm like, I gotta bring my valuables with me to get oh to this God. area, right? But I got there, and nothing bad really happened, right? It was a good time. I started seeing all these people. I found out I had other siblings. I was like, what? I got sisters. Wow. I never had sisters. It was a good time. But the only thing that was disappointing is my dad showed up super late. And this was right before cell phone. So my grandmother, who dropped me off, she said, you know, when the streetlights come on, I'm going to come pick you up. And right when the streetlights started to come on, my dad showed up. He was intoxicated. And then my grandmother oh, wow. kind of showed up right after that. So I had this interaction with my biological father that was not, it wasn't lengthy. And it was just like, okay, you didn't show up on time. You knew I was coming and then you were drunk. And I knew what a drunk person was because I I lived in the quote unquote hood. I seen a lot of drunk people and I knew what that was. And I'm like, okay, he shows up drunk. So I went from having the dad that was the abuser to the dad that was the drunk dude. And at Mm. that time, in my 12-year-old mind on July 4th, I decided I don't need a man to really help me do anything because Uh they just disappointed me. And at this time, I'm just growing a little, you know, hair on my chin. I had a little bit of hair under my armpits. You know, I'm feeling myself. I think I'm a man now, right? <laughs> right, right. I'm a man. I don't need no man. And that's what mm. I told myself. And I kept that kind of concept and mentality with me until pretty much my early 20s after I got out of college. And I would always be very suspicious of men, especially black men. It was like a self-discovery type of thing, but never really mm. feeling comfortable in who I am. And like I said, I carry with me. And a lot of the things that I've been able to accomplish in my life have always had women that have been a part of that, whether it was a guidance mm. counselor or a professor or just a colleague or a mentor or whatever. There always been women. So me and men always had this kind of weird kind of dynamic. And even mm. to this day. I have two really good male friends and a third who's kind of like unborderline. <laughs> but I know a whole lot of women, though. And mm. not that I'm like some playboy or anything like that. I'm married. Yeah. But I just know a lot of women as colleagues. I've always felt more comfortable connecting to women than men. My husband is the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Due to how mm-hmm. I grew up. And that's just that's just the way it is. But I tell that because that's an important part of my origin story and the work that I do, because Mm -hmm. I had to do more self-analysis of my own trauma and my own healing journey to understand how do I help other people throughout theirs. And that was so important because it impacted my relationship with my brothers and impacted the relationship with my own mother It impacted the relationship with my family. Because I'm thinking, you know, at this age, like everybody knows the secret, but me, why did they keep it from me? Like, why wasn't Mm -hmm. this something that my mom could tell me? And really, it was her own embarrassment and the things that she dealt with as a child, too. So, again, your trauma starts before you're born. 
My mother had me. She was pregnant with me throughout her senior year of high school. She did not intend to get pregnant. She intended to go to college. But her and my biological dad, they were friends. And they. this is literally my birth story. It's like Netflix and chill. But there was no Netflix. <laughs> so my, my parents VHS were literally... and chill. VHS and chill. And they were watching the classic Purple Rain. And that's how... That's my birth well. story. It had just came out. And that you're from Minneapolis. <laughs> and oh I'm from Minneapolis. God. So Purple Rain is the reason Ooh, why I'm here today. <laughs> Prince literally courses through your veins. Right. <laughs> so it's just, once the truth finally came out, I was like, oh, so that's what she was like. Yep. One time, you know, we hooked up once and boom, there it is. So that's how Brandon came about. And my mom's trauma comes from her and her mother once she got pregnant, because that was never the goal. Her and her mom had their own kind of tenuous relationship. My mom got kicked out the house. It was cra- it was just crazy stuff happening. How old was she when she got pregnant with you? She was 17. Mm-hmm. Yep. So by the time she had me, she had turned 18. But, you know, mm-hmm. teenage pregnancy at, yep. at a time in the mid 80s where that was starting to rev up and become a bigger issue. And, mm-hmm. you know, teenage pregnancy has gone down since. But from the, you know, the mid 80s to the mid 1990s, that was a huge thing. Mm-hmm. And my mom was unfortunately, she was one of those statistics that was a part of that. But I had to look at my lineage. Like, how did we get here? Right. That relationship that my mom had with her mother. And then what happened with my grandmother and her parents? And how did we even get to Minnesota? Because I'm a fourth generation Black Minnesotan. That's a rare thing. There's not a lot of us. Now, most Black people that come here are folks who are transplants from other states and cities, and they come here for economic opportunity. And we have like these historical Black families in this area that came here early. And really what it was, was just that transition of African-American folks migrating from Southern states north for jobs. Mm -hmm. So you had a lot of people who would move north. And my paternal great-grandfather, he was one of those people who came and worked at a honey well and he did carpenting Mm. and he built his home and things like that. So there's a lot of historical trauma that led to how we get to where we are today. And that's the work that I talk about and do, whether it's in a training capacity or if it's in a consulting capacity with organizations to help them understand that foundation so mm-hmm. that they can inform and help the clients that they work with today. So so yeah. that's a little, I can go on and on about my journey. <laughs> well, that's what we're here for. Well, at what point did you decide you're going to become a therapist? When did that come into play? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, my original intent was to become a dentist. I went to school. What? I went to the University of Minnesota. I was in pre-dentistry classes. I was pretty wow. good. I was, I was a nerd. So I was a nerd and an athlete. I was good enough to be recruited to play sports at college level. But inside, I was really a nerd. I was I was an <laughs> avid reader. I watched documentaries. Like, mm-hmm. I was just a nerd. And I was really good at math and science. It came natural to me. But I went to public high school. And when I got to college and I'm doing pre-dentistry classes, I got my butt kicked. I mean, really? one of the things about me is I used to tell people I was on the football team uh, because I'm a black dude on a predominantly white campus. And mm. it's cool if you're you're already cool because there's not a lot of you. But if you play football, you're even extra cool. So I used to tell people <laughs> I was a redshirt freshman and that lie did not last long, but I knew a lot of the football players. So the lie kind of worked. But again, this is me struggling with my own ideas of masculinity and identity, yeah. et cetera. So I'm hanging out with the football players. We're, you know, we're doing what people do when you have status on a college campus. And I wasn't studying and taking my academics as serious as I should, especially being a pre-dentistry major. And I got put on academic probation my first semester. So straight out the <laughs> gate, <laughs> almost getting kicked out of school. And I had two academic advisors. I had one because I was part of a multicultural group. And then I had your standard college academic advisor. And my multicultural academic advisor, she said, Brandon, 
it's important that you are here. Like it was hard enough to get you to college, mm -hmm. but knowing the statistics, it's going to be harder to get you out. And she said, mm. you need to get your shit together. Like she just kept it raw. And I was just wow, like, wow, oh. that's crazy. Like, no one talks to me like this, but family right. members. And this one was like, no, you need to get your shit together because you're smart and you need to graduate on time. And she mm. said there were 13 students of color that came from my school that went to college. It was all part of a program. And she said, you know, statistically, only four of you are going to graduate on time Fuck. and you have to be one of those four. She said, my mm. goal is to make sure you all graduate. But statistically, only four of you will. And she was right. Only four of us. She Seriously? was like spot on. Yeah, only four of us graduated oh on time. God, now, wow. since then, I think there's about nine of the 13 that actually graduated from college. But on time, she was mm -hmm, actually right. Mm -hmm. And I was one of those four. But what the transition for me was, I was about to fail. I was about to flunk out. But I was taking one class called People and Problems. And I was just kicking mm. ass in this class. I mean, essays, getting A's, you know, exams, getting mm -hmm. A's. I'm just doing well. And that was the only class I was doing well in. And one day, one day the professor stops, big ass lecture hall, 80 something students, University of Minnesota. I answered a question and I answered like two questions in a row. And she just stopped middle lecture and said, I don't know who's studying with this kid, but whoever <laughs> is will pass the next exam. And I was like, holy shit. She hey. just pointed me out front of everybody. Yeah. Wow. You, you say, hey, but as a black dude on a predominantly <laughs> oh, campus, yeah. you don't want that attention. You yeah. Like, so after class, I went and talked to her and I'm like, hey, like, I appreciate if you don't point me out. And she was like, no, I've been reading your essays. You're really good at this. This is Dr. Heidi Baraha. Shout out to her. And she said, you should get a Ph.D. And at this time, I'm a first generation college student. I'm just happy to be on college campus, honestly. The real reason why I went was I knew that my life would probably be better if I went to college, but I knew that they had girls. I knew there was a place <laughs> to stay and I knew that I could eat because I was yeah. trying to escape all the crazy mm, stuff from home. Wow. And I'm just happy to be there. But she was like, no, you need to get a PhD. I did not know what a PhD was. I didn't even know. I didn't know what grass was. I went back to my dorm room and I'm an old millennial. So I was fortunate enough to have Google when I went to college and I Googled PhD because what I thought it was, what Puffy said in a song all about the Benjamins where he says, you need a PhD, which is a player haters degree. So people who heard that song, <laughs> that's what I'm like. Right, right. I don't know what the hell a PhD oh. is. Nobody in my family has ever graduated college or gone to grad school at that point in time. So this mm. was all foreign to me. And that just like, fuel to fire. It's like, okay, I need to go to grad school. I need to get a PhD. You know, somebody said that I can do it. It was pretty much giving me like permission. So I switched my major and that class was actually a sociology class. It was titled People and Problems, but it was sociology. So I switched my major to sociology and then I started to just like kick ass. I mean, I graduated with a 3.6, all that type of stuff. And then I was looking at grad schools. And again, don't know nothing, just mm -hmm. applying to grad schools. I went to USA Today. I don't know if you know this, but every year they post like the top 25 programs for each discipline. So I just oh, go funny. find this list. I applied to 10 top 25 fucking sociology PhD programs. Wow. I got put on eight wait lists and two denials. And I'm like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? Wow. <laughs> so that's not a good strategy for people. If you don't go to an Ivy League school and you're not like, uh, you know, connected, you do not apply to 10 top 25 schools. You Which just don't is do it. bullshit. And we can talk about that later. But go on. <laughs> So that's me not knowing anything and just mm -hmm. doing something. I'm like, what the hell? So I'm getting all these denial letters and these waitlist letters. And I'm like, man, this is this is disheartening because I'm thinking I'm a smart kid. Right. Right. I was dating a girl at the time. She was going to another school uh, that's locally here called Metro State. She said, hey, Brent, you know, we have a master's program. You should check it out. You're getting all these denial letters, but, you know, you want to go to grad school. So I was like, cool. So I applied and got into a community psychology program. 
And as I got into that program, I also landed a job uh, in a psych ward at St. Joseph's Hospital, downtown St. Paul. Hmm. And I spent two years there as a behavioral tech. And that was my introduction mm. to what real mental health is. Yes, sir. <laughs> and when I say real mental health, I'm talking mm-hmm. about serious, sustained yep. mental illnesses, SBMIs. Yeah. Yeah. Because a lot of times when we talk about mental health, most times, especially in common lingo, we're talking really about depression and anxiety. Right. Right. But when you are really dealing with people who have serious sustained mental illnesses, to me, that's what we used to call access to diagnosis. You know, for those who are trained in DSM-4, those are folks who really struggle with mental health. I'm not saying that if you have depression or anxiety, you're not really struggling, but it's just a different level. And, I, and we mm-hmm, have to be, able mm-hmm. to be honest enough to understand that difference between the two. And so that just was like, I was seeing things and I'm like, wow. I know so many people who probably need to be here, but have never been in an institution. Mm. And I just remember growing up and thinking about like family members or neighbors and like those people had mental illnesses and I just had no idea. Wow. Were you seeing your childhood then from a different lens once you got that perspective? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Mm. I was... One, I was I was diagnosing people in my family like oh I know well, fuck yeah we all do that <laughs> yeah. I know this person uh-huh. oh, that's why social acts like that uh-huh. so yeah I started to understand a lot more and at that time I was an avid reader too so I was really starting to dig into just different types of understandings of mental health and I, I mean mm-hmm. like I told you I was a nurse I'm reading research articles and shit like that on one end I read Malcolm Gladwell on the other end I'm picking up you know psychology today and I'm going into the archives I'm mm-hmm. reading all these we're trying to really understand this stuff so yeah it gave me better perspective on what mental health is and then it came time to make some money so i'm like okay i need to get a job i'm about to graduate grad school and then i started to look for mental health jobs and i realized you need to have a license to actually make some money in this field so i went talk to my academic advisor and they said well this program doesn't get you licensed in mental health and i'm like well what the hell am i doing here then Mm -hmm. so at that point I had to make a decision, go back to grad school and get a degree that you can get licensed or just figure out something else to do with my master's degree. Mm-hmm. So I went back and got another master's from Adler Graduate School in psychotherapy. I, mm-hmm. I see you shaking your head. Right. Not the best idea. Double master's. Oh, my yeah, God. Overachiever. But yeah, student loans kicking my butt to this day. But mm. so. <laughs> right. Exactly. Oh, another thing. Talk about mental <laughs> health. That's Oof. one thing that we need to talk about. But so. I went back, got another, and Adlerian therapy was such a breath of fresh air for me. It just made Mm. so much sense. I was able to connect a lot of dots. And I also felt like of all the therapeutic disciplines that I've been able to understand, research, and study, it fit best with communities of color. I don't know why that is. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah, the approach was just like, I'm like, wow, I can really apply this to folks that I know. Like, this makes sense. And then I fell in love with it. And then I got into the field and started doing this therapeutic work, got the practicums, got all my hours. And then I got something that was a huge door opener for me, something called the Bush Foundation Leadership Fellowship. It's a very prestigious award here in Minnesota, but also in the Dakotas as well. And they pick anywhere between 13 to 20 people per year. And what they do is they invest in leaders in the community. And I, apl- I actually That's applied twice. Awesome. Man, it's, it was such a blessing. And it just really changed my perspective on what the hell am I going to do in my life? Mm. Because once I got that, people that I've never heard of, organizations started reaching out to me to do things because it gave me validation. And then I started to question, 
do I really want to get licensed or do I want to, you know, take some of these cool ass opportunities that people keep throwing at me? Because at first I kept saying no, because I was on this track of getting licensed. And you know about it. You know, you got to get your 2000 hours. You got to get your relational hours, your individual hours. You got to pass your exam. And that shit is stressful because a lot of times you're broke and you are working at organizations where they're either paying you a little bit or they're not paying you anything. And at this time, I'm trying to get married. A couple of years later, I, after I did get married, we had a child. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, you're trying to do all of that. Yeah, I'm doing too much at oh once. Oh, my god! And I said, the next cool opportunity that comes my way, I'm not going to say no to it. Mm. And then it happened. And I ended up doing consulting. And that's how I got into doing a lot more trainings and things like that. I also mm-hmm, met a man mm-hmm. by the name of Sam Simmons, who's been a great mentor to me to help me understand how to be a consultant and mm-hmm. do this work. And not allow licensures and things of that nature to get in your way of doing quality therapeutic work. And therapy can look different for different people. And that's when I started to really do this training and really start to work with organizations and develop curriculum and programming to better you know, outcomes for a lot of different people. And that's been kind of my journey ever since. I've been doing this for a while. I've won all types of other awards since then, but that was the biggest thing that I have had. Because it really just put me on, it really put me on a national spotlight. But it, I mean, literally, University of Minnesota, hey, oh, you're alumni too? Oh, come on in. We got this project we're trying to do. We got $300,000 to do this. And it's just like, where does all this money come from? And it's stuff that a lot of people, especially people like me with my background, never hear of, never get exposure to. But that stamp of approval from the Bush Foundation allowed me to do that and really start making some impact in the community. So that's a long kind of drawn out Mm -hmm, (laughs) history mm -hmm. of me. But really, my journey comes from battling the trauma that I've experienced but utilizing Mm -hmm. my experience to help other people and heal myself during that time. So, yes. Well, and I want to ask the healer question, but first I would love to talk a little bit about racism because when you share your story, a story like yours is an opportunity for so many white people who don't understand racism to be like, well, look, he did it. Yeah, he made it. He made yeah. it out, right? <laughs> there are so, a lot of movies that make it out. <laughs> right? And they, they're like, well, Oprah, right? Like, <laughs> you know, so I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about the, the, I don't know, that bootstraps myth and how, like, it happened for you, but that not everybody does have that opportunity because some of it's right place, right time. And some of it's, Absolutely. you know, it, you talk. I'll shut Absolutely. up. Absolutely. <laughs> no, no, you're right. And for me, one thing that we have to keep in mind is racism is overt and covert. And what I mean by that is there's racism that's in your face and then there's racism that's systematic that you Mm -hmm. never see that has huge impacts on your life. One of my goals in the work that I do is to try to address that covert racism because that's the stuff that many people aren't even aware of. They're just a part of it. And it's like, oh, I am racist. When you start to read Robin DiAngelo and you start to deal with those types of things and white fragility, then you start to see how you're a part of these systems that have been set up. Now, I'm fortunate enough to slip through a lot of cracks and have a lot of opportunities provided to me. But there's a lot more people who were smarter than I am, probably better suited to do what I do do that haven't had those opportunities due to racism. I am fortunate enough to be able to be prepared for opportunities when they've showed up and just take them, stumble through them, but make some type of impact as it goes. But racism does play a huge role in how that happens. If it wasn't for the inequalities that were out there, I might not even be in this position. 
I do understand and I'm not oblivious to people see a black male who can speak legibly to a certain extent and they're willing to tokenize me and help me get to another level. That's a part of racism because if there was no racism, that wouldn't be a thing. I do know that. I do know that my ability to go to the University of Minnesota was racial, was race-based. They need to meet a quota. They need to have certain kids from mm-hmm, certain mm-hmm. communities on their campus or they're judged. And I just so happened to do enough work to be qualified enough to be one of those kids to go into this program to get on this campus. Can we get into that too? Because you're a professor as well, right? Yes, I yeah. Am. And my struggle as a professor, I think I've talked about this on the show before, is that we're in a white institution that has certain expectations, right? And I I work in one program that is only online. And so that tends to attract more diverse learners, people who haven't maybe gone the trajectory that, you know, my other university students have. And so there's a real struggle to meet the academic requirements. And me as a professor, I'm in this position then to hold these people accountable to a standard to which they've never been educated. Right. And I feel like an asshole and they yep. feel like shit. And I'm yep. just like, who is responsible for this? Why is it my fault now? You know? And you have to be extremely flexible. You know, <laughs> right. I've been a professor now since 2017. And I know my first year teaching was shit. I'll just be honest because I was <laughs> all just of doing, ours. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I, I was just doing what I, I seen mm-hmm, all my professors mm-hmm, do. And right. that second year, after I had my evaluation and I talked to, you know, some of my peers in the field, I started to adjust the way that I do teaching and how mm-hmm, do I instruct mm-hmm. courses. And I start to make it a lot more flexible. Another thing that I learned, because I teach grad school at the school that I actually graduated from, Metro mm-hmm, State, mm-hmm. but I teach on the community college level. And we have right. a, it's just a whole other demographic right, totally on the different. community college level. Mm-hmm. But every semester, so let me let me back up. The way that I started my semesters was I started to introduce myself similar to like what we did earlier today. Told about myself. Said, this is who I am. This is my journey. And this is going to be a learning experience. I teach psychology classes. So anything that I talk about in my life, I can always attach it back to some concept in the textbook. So that approach really let a lot of guards down for a lot of my students. And then another thing that I say the first day is, yes, I am a Black man. And raise your hand if this is the first time you've ever had an instructor of color. And then I say, raise your hand if you've ever had an African-American instructor. Keep your hand up if it's ever been a male. And there's like two people still raising their hand by the time that happens. So I say, okay. So this is going to be a different experience for us all, but this is going to be a great learning experience as we go through the semester. And I wanted to make sure that anything we learn, you can attach back to your life because psychology is everywhere. And when I start that and I bring that bridge down, then students started to open up to me about stuff. And since then, it never fails. Every semester, whether I'm teaching online, whether I'm teaching in person, I have at least two students who come to me with a personal issue. And they say, you're the only instructor or the only person I feel like I can talk to about this. And I'm like, this is outside of my scope as far as being an instructor, but this is something that they need. And a lot of times these are students of color. They're like, I'm dealing with domestic violence situation or housing or food insecurities. You know, I'm dealing with a mental uh, child who has special needs or mental illness. And they just they're looking for assistance or resources and they don't feel comfortable mm-hmm. in their other courses to share these things. 
And they don't know how to look for resources. And they don't know how to do it. Mm -hmm. So now, not only am I instructing courses, I'm also being an advocate and I'm helping help these students on their, what I call their learning journey. So I always talk about journeys because I think in this field that we're in, whether it's teaching or whether it's therapy, is we try to get people to reach a destination. It's like, you need to graduate. That linear Western way of thinking. Mm -hmm, (laughs) And it's like, mm -hmm. I don't know how to help somebody heal or heal being sexually abused, right? Like that's something that's going to be with you, unfortunately. And there's things that you can do to cope with it. Mm-hmm. But that, to me, I don't think that goes away. Like that's that's a that's what we call those big T traumas. Mm-hmm. That's really hard to like say you're going to heal from that sexual abuse that happened at the hands of your, you know, one of your family members. But this is what people go through, and they're still trying to live lives and be successful. But they still have this pain with them, and and it's our job to make sure that we're helping them and help facilitate their journey to the best of their ability while we have them. So I approach that same way that I approach instructing and try to be open and flexible with students, whether that's extending due dates, whether that's taking extra time to explain things. You know, if they feel uncomfortable meeting in person and they want to meet on Zoom, then that's something that we'll do. I'll do whatever Mm -hmm. it takes for this person to pass this class with the best possible grade that they can get. And that's huge. And I didn't have that. There was a standard. Right. You need to meet it. And if you didn't, good luck. And Mm -hmm. And that's how I was flunked out. I had to really shift my own mentality mm-hmm. towards understanding education and towards moving through. And I just struggled yeah. through it. But today we don't have to. Well, which is why we need to change academia. Like that's, oh, absolutely. That, that, <laughs> that's what I'm pissed about. Right. I'm pissed about, you know, <laughs> the we're going to let in all students, but we're not going to prepare them for what they're about to embark on. I yep. had a student once who was working full time nights going mm-hmm. to his internship during the day and then going to classes and needing mm-hmm. to write papers and all these things. Yep. And I'm I'm like, the school fucked up. Yep. The school fucked up by not telling you what was going to be expected of you right. and by not making it different. And, and I find there's so many people, and, and working with addiction too, I also have seen people fall through the cracks because they can't keep up with that pace. Yep. And it's not... It's not that there's something wrong with these people. It's that there's something wrong with the system. And that right. that's what we're in right now in this moment of trying to recognize what it is we need to dismantle in yeah. order to help more people. One of the things that we have to do, and I think COVID kind of like opened the door a little bit to mm-hmm. this, is we have to analyze the structures and institutions that we have and how do we make it more equitable for everybody? Right. Because when we had to shut down cities, we had to remove kids from schools, we started to see the big gaps that people honestly have. Right. And I'm focusing on younger kids here because I think this helps highlight this is when you're like, all right, we're going to go to remote learning and we're going to send home Google Chromebooks and iPads home. And then you realize students don't have internet at home. And then they're like, oh shit, like what are we supposed to do now? Now you have a lot of kids who are already somewhat behind. Mm -hmm, Now mm -hmm. these kids have been out of school for three months. They're going to be going back to, if they even go back to school, they might still be remote. They're not going back. (laughs) And you're like, yeah. Mm -mm. (laughs) But think about how far behind these Mm -hmm, students are going to be mm -hmm. and what type of impact is this going to make 10 years from now, 15 years from now, when these elementary school students are getting ready to graduate and they're three, almost two to three great levels behind. What kind of workforce does that create for us? What kind of citizens, if we want to use school as the predictor of what's civil or not, 
what is that going to do when we are not prepared to have equitable solutions for everybody? Mm-hmm. And we scrambled. You know, you can apply the same ideal and concept to the post-secondary level because this is where we're trying to fine-tune mm-hmm. professions. And if you have people mm-hmm. who aren't equipped to learn or they have struggles because of whatever and you don't have resources to help them move forward, what type of people are we producing for the workplace? Right. right? When you have nursing students who I don't know how the hell they're going to learn in the COVID-19 situation because a lot of those labs Mm -hmm. and things like that, you have to be physically there. So what type of quality nursing are we going to have in the next couple of years when the placement workforce hasn't had the ideal training that they should? So institutions really have to start thinking about how do we start making things more equitable and flexible? Utilize this technology we have. Don't be scared of it. And this is for us instructors as mm-hmm, well, because mm-hmm. I've, I've been a part of these email threads and people are pissed and scared because <laughs> they don't know how to teach <laughs> electronically. Right, right. And it's like, well, at some point you needed to advance mm-hmm, your ability. Mm-hmm. And, you know, yes, you've been an instructor for 15 years, but guess what? We've had a whole change in 15 years and you needed to change. And where is the standard? Where is the expectation? for us to evolve with the times. That's how we make things more equitable for everybody. And we are able to advance our ability to learn. When you look at the United States on an academic level, whether that's from K, actually pre-K, to grad school, we are behind so many different countries because we don't advance our way of doing things. Well, and I also, this is funny, we don't have enough time to talk about all of this. (laughs) But every time you say the word behind, I'm having a reaction to that because that's also still reinforcing a linear model of time, which is part of white supremacy, right? Continuing to be better, continuing to be more. Whereas if we thought more in a cyclical, like you said, journey way, then we recognize that seasons come and seasons go. And it's not necessarily that we're moving forward. We're just always in motion. Right. So I agree with that. And that's my own Western socialization. Right. All of us. (laughs) But I do think that we do need some linear kind of way of development for, I would say, young people. Let's just focus on mm-hmm. young people. Because what ends up happening is if we have young people who are not developing at a consistent pace, we're going to have this huge variation. And that huge variation can create more inequalities because typically who are going to be the young people who are developing at the pace that they should be and mm-hmm. who are the young people, people who are resources. not. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So mm-hmm. if we if we don't make it equitable, we're mm-hmm. going to continue to have this huge gap between the haves and the have-nots, so to say. And if we don't think of it from an equity lens, then we're going to be stuck. So that's why I use that because mm-hmm. in this system that we live in, capitalism, white supremacy, whatever we want to use, that's how we're measured, right? right. And we don't want to have people who can't read and they're 24 years old or they struggle with mm-hmm. literacy and 24 years old. That's just not healthy for the society that we live in. So how do we have equitable solutions to help get those people at a level of literacy? It's probably not eligibility, but literacy where that they can function without being at a disadvantage. That's what I mean by that. So that's the difference between equality and equity and how we look at this kind of hierarchy and this linear thinking. Yeah, yeah. Well, I need to ask the healer questions before we get to the end of the end of our hour here. But so do you consider yourself a healer in the work that you do? Absolutely. I consider myself a healer because one of the things I try to do, no matter whether it's this podcast interview or something that I write or even a post or a tweet on social media, is I try to get people to think about how are the things that are going on currently impacting them and what are some of the strategies they can utilize to either deal with that or to improve it. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's what healing is about. Healing is a journey. 
And the way that I define healing is a consistent process of efforts to create peace, balance, and justice. So I try to do that to the best of my ability. And I try to be mindful and respectful to everybody in order to do that. If anybody ever asks me for help, I'm always trying to help them. Even if I don't have time, I'll point them into a different direction or I'll give them a resource because I understand that everybody's going through something different. And there's no one size fits all solution. So you have to just kind of be mindful that everybody's at a different point in their journey, but how do you help them move forward is what I like to do. So again, Mm -hmm. a consistent effort of peace, balance, and justice is something that I think that everybody can utilize, whatever their struggle is, to find that level of healing. Mm -hmm. And how do you feel about the term wounded healer? (laughs) We're all wounded healers. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think we're all products of this system since we use that term. And... I think most people who get into this work are wounded because one, you don't get into this work because it's lucrative. Like you can just go work at Target and make $80,000 or you can get on the struggle train and get licensed and make 50,000 or 45,000, but do this work. It's just like a teacher. Like most people don't teach because it's lucrative. They teach because they care about young people and they want to help impact society and help young people develop. Mm -hmm. Right. So for us, being wounded, most of us get into this because we've had some kind of experience ourselves, whether whether it was one of our parents who had an addiction or one of our best friends had a mental illness, or maybe we did, whatever the mm-hmm. case may be. That's why people get into this work. So yeah, we're all wounded and we should all be on our own healing journeys. And I do think that there is an ability to quote unquote heal yourself or be a part of your own healing journey when you're helping other people. That's just my perspective. And that's just how I am and how I grew up. And I think it's also culturally based that the collective, Mm -hmm. you know, health is a part of my health as well. And that's not how we're trained as clinicians. You're not even trained to share personal stuff about yourself, which is already putting you at a disadvantage if you're working with communities of color, especially Black folks, because when you work with us, we want to know who you are, where you come from, who your mama is. We want to know you, right? And if you are setting up a wall because that's how the institution taught you, Mm -hmm. or that's how the Mm -hmm. field taught you, you're already working at a disadvantage. So to me, it's about collective and helping other people as I go through my own process and journey as well. Well, and I I was trained as a social worker, and in my training, we definitely talked about systems, but it still was like, okay, the system is here, you know, macro, mezzo, micro, and the micro, you know, we just spent so much time on this individual work. And I just have realized, I think, since COVID went down, just how disconnected, even though I've said the words interconnected, and I've believed these things spiritually, that's not what I'm actually teaching people. You know, and part of the reason that we're in this fucked up mess in the United States right now is because people won't wear masks because people don't give a (laughs) shit about other people. It's only self-interest. And that's I think Ibram X. Kendi said that racism is because of self-interest, not because of hate and Mm -hmm. miseducation. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's like what you're saying is just so real. And I'm feeling so downtrodden right now because I don't know how we are going to shift the internal relationship with the collective for Mm -hmm. everybody. I just don't. Can you answer that question in less than nine minutes? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, that's a whole, we're going to come back for a whole other podcast. (laughs) But in order for us to do this work and deal with racism, white supremacy, the work can't be just on white folks, but white folks have a lot of work to do. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I have been very vocal about and frustrated on is it's not the job of non-white people to educate white people about their shit, okay? 
you have folks who are very articulate, very decorated, who talk about this, but you don't listen to those people. Mm -hmm. And those people are like the Robin D'Angelo. I think she's one of the premier people who does it. Jane Elliott's a historical figure in this space. Robert Jensen's talked about this stuff for a long time. So there's a lot of people who talk about this stuff. But at some point, you have to be able to be comfortable enough to be uncomfortable and have these conversations in your day to day. And that's just a key thing for white folks. You have a lot of work to do, and it can't be on us to educate you because I don't think that white folks are ignorant about racism. I hear that all the time is this is ignorance. How can you be ignorant about something? I do, though. And I can speak to that only because I was. The first time I heard white privilege was in grad school. That was just over 10 years ago. And it's because we're swimming in the sea of white supremacy, like, I mean, my I can think of my family members like they literally don't know. I mean, now almost everybody has to know there's no excuse. But before it came to this head, we could just put blinders on. We really could be ignorant to it. Right. So why is that? Let's let's break this down. And Mm -hmm, I can mm -hmm. tell you why I think that white folks are not ignorant about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The reason for that is white has been the standard. If you live in a Western country, especially here in the United States, let's just stay here in the U.S., that is the standard. And Mm -hmm. the standard has been made normal. It's to the point where I've heard white people say things like, I don't have a culture. Or if you ask them about their ethnicity, they go, I'm a mutt. My grandma's Polish. My dad's Italian. I'm just white. And that is your culture. That is it. You have white culture. That's what it is. And what this culture of white supremacy has done has allowed you all to not be able to see anything different. And anything outside of white culture is a different type of object. It's diff- It's foreign. Like diversity, the whole term of diversity. <laughs> Diverse from what? Yes. <laughs> right. I'm with you. I'm so with yes. you. But white folks understand that people, let's just use black people because that's just an easy thing to mm-hmm, talk about. Mm-hmm. So black folks struggle and why they struggle, right? That You know where the black part of town is. Mm-hmm. You know that you don't want your children to play with certain types of children because they might have different influences on them. If a biracial or multiracial person shows up to your school in your all white neighborhood, there's a response to that person. That is racism. So to me, I don't think that that's ignorance. I think it's a choice not to address being in a diverse situation or being able to, quote unquote, see color, because that's another thing that people say is I don't see color. It's like, how do you not? That's what our generation was raised with. Right. That's what we were taught was polite. Or the white people taught us to do that. Exactly. But that's yeah. the culture of whiteness. That's right. how you maintain the system. And you have the power to do that and that be accepted. Right. So to me, that's not ignorance. Ignorance is a lack of information. You know what that is. You know that you were taught something. It's just that now you have to acknowledge it. So when it comes to this, I think that it's more about being uncomfortable and a level of discomfort about being called out on racism than it actually you being a racist. And that's when people get real frustrated. Now, there are people out there who are straight up like, I don't like this type of person. They are racist. They shine in it. (laughs) And that's their prerogative. Do I think it's right? No, because I think we need to be in inclusive as we can, especially as this nation, because we need each other to survive. But the culture of whiteness and the white advantage, because I don't like the, the term white privilege, the white advantage has been something that has been given to you all to maintain that level of superiority where you don't even see it as something that is superior. So to me, I don't think that that's ignorance per se. I think that it's just a culture where you don't have to acknowledge something different. And it, when I'm thinking about how you're framing it, it's like, Ignorance, if I'm thinking about ignorance on the individual level, like, no, like I'm not ignorant. But as a collective, just the 
denial. It's that's what it is, is denial, right? And because the collective has not been challenged since the 60s, I guess, right? Like in a more national form. Right, exactly. So since the collective hasn't been challenged like that since then, you know, Robin DiAngelo talks about racial tolerance, stress Mm -hmm. tolerance, right? Mm -hmm. And so like our generation who was raised to be colorblind, like I think we're on the other side of the spectrum of racial Mm -hmm. tolerance because it's it's impolite. I'm a bad person if I point out somebody's race. It's refined. Right. And that's the piece of it where it's, you're right, the ignorance is not the right word, but we've been blind, yeah, but you've been you've been socialized to do socialized that. Socialized to be you blind. Maintain, right. That's how you maintain that level of superiority because it's like, oh, we're all the same. You know, we can all go to school together. We can get married now. Like, but again, that's part of the advantage is that you can be in denial. Right. I right. cannot deny that I'm a black person. Right. I, it's on my mind all the time. Everything <laughs> that I do, even coming on this podcast, I have to be mindful of how I appear, whether that's consciously or subconsciously, because when I do those types of things, I am being judged automatically. Just like when I appear first day of class and my students who didn't look at the syllabus, which is most of them, didn't see my photo on the <laughs> syllabus. And they're like, holy shit, like mm-hmm. our instructor's a black dude. I had a situation earlier this semester before COVID at the beginning of the semester where a student walked up and said, hey, do you know when the professor is going to come? And I'm like, I am the professor. Nice to meet you. And, you know, was that her ignorance? Wow. Or was she just not expecting this black dude who's dressed in business attire, by the way? Because <laughs> I'm not, trust wow. me, if I'm going to school, I'm not going to be wearing a dress shirt and slacks. And, you know, I know, she said, right? do you know when the professor's going to show up? I'm like, I am mm-hmm. the professor. Hey. I'm, I'm literally up at the podium. Right. <laughs> But to her, was that her ignorance or was that the culture that she's been in where she's never had a black person in front of her to be her instructor? Now, Mm -hmm. I know that to be true because in her review, she talked about how this class was more about her ability to see things differently than it was about general psychology. And she talked about having a black instructor really helped her grow and develop. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow, like. I knew exactly who it was when I got the results back mm. because of that experience and the back and forth that we had throughout the semester. Was that her ignorance or was that her ability to see beyond this yeah, color blindness yeah, yeah. and see that, oh, I have a lot of work to do too. And it was no fault to her. I didn't cuss her out or anything like that. But it was one of those things that was just an eye-opening experience for this young woman right. to say, holy shit, I made a really bad judgment because I've never been in this experience before. And I just assumed that this guy was... I don't know what she thought I was, an IT person or something. I don't know. But that's what takes place is that having this white advantage allows for folks to be in this state of denial. And since George Floyd happened and the response that has been overwhelming for all of us, we're at a place where the denial can't be in existence. And we have to be able to have these uncomfortable conversations and put in some uncomfortable strategies for people to move forward. So I think that we're moving forward as a nation, really as a kind of on the world stage, but I'll just talk about us as a nation. And it's going to be uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for us all the time. And now it's white folks turn to be uncomfortable. And it's necessary because there's no growth in the comfort zone and there's no comfort in the growth zone. And this is how we grow. So I know we're running out of time. I know. Get off my soapbox there. (laughs) Well, I just, you are incredible. This is everything I expected it to be and more. I just really appreciate you. Do you want to tell folks how they can find you and, and learn more from you? Absolutely. So if you want to connect with me on social media, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. I am by Brandon Jones on all those. That's B-Y-B-R-A-N-D-O-N-J-O-N-E-S. You can find me on all those platforms. 
And if you want to go to my website, you can check me out at jegna.org. That's J-E-G-N-A dot O-R-G. And you can find my YouTube channel and things there. You can also find me on LinkedIn too. Whatever works best for you, you can find me. Um, I'm always open to questions or if you have any other opportunities that you want to connect with me on, feel free. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time today. It's really been a pleasure to get to know you. Thank you, Sarah. It was a pleasure to get to know you as well. Thanks so much to Brandon for being an amazing guest today. If you'd like to find out more information about Brandon, you can visit us at www.headhearttherapy.com slash podcast. Thanks as always to Andrea Clunder in the Creative Imposter Studios for editing, to Liam O'Donnell for the album art, and to Ben Mueller for our theme music. Until next time, bye-bye.